So we ended the first session and that fifth look at Jesus with why he was despised and rejected and crushed to death at the cross, namely for us, for the many, as Isaiah says it, for those who receive him through faith. And I noted there at the end about the joy that was set before him. That is, as Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 53, 11, out of his anguish he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, it pleased him to give himself for us. He delighted, in a sense, to be put to death for what it would achieve. His willing was not an empty willing, but a full, satisfied willing full enough to sustain him in the horrifying agony and suffering of the cross. But what the joy that sent him to the cross requires is resurrection. If Jesus stays dead, there is no delight, no joy in it for him, in it for the Father, in it for us. There is no God-honoring and no church-loving willingness if he stays dead. His joy in it and delight in it leans on his being raised from it. And the resurrection is right there in Isaiah 53. So that's where I want us to start here in this second session. In Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And this, this is literally, this is the word delight translated elsewhere in Isaiah. Kind of hard to handle it for translators. But this willing is not an empty willing, as if he's willing to do it, but doesn't really want to do it. It's the kind of willing that wants it, that embraces it. Even the language of delight, striking. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. Literally, I will give him the many as his portion. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So there is so much there. <laughs> There's substitution. There's willing submission, there's intercession, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But for now, the main thing I wanna point out is resurrection. Right there in Isaiah 53, verse 10. He shall see his offspring. So from what he accomplishes in his death, there will be offspring. His death is a kind of seed that will be planted that will bring forth offspring. And then it says that the Lord will prolong his days. 
What does that mean, someone going to death, having his days prolonged? Is the prolonging before the death? It's a prolonging after the death. And then it says, the Lord shall prosper. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will become the instrument of God having his will accomplished in the world, and that's coming on the other side of the sacrifice he's making. Verse 11, he shall see his offspring and be satisfied. Verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many. When does that happen? After the death. And he shall divide his spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. So he can't receive the many and the spoil before the death if it's based on the death. He receives the many because he pours out his soul to death. So the resurrection is not icing on the cake in Christianity. With Christ's death and resurrection, with Christ's death and life, the resurrection is the cake. If Jesus did not rise, if Jesus is dead, then it all falls apart. Isaiah 53 falls apart. The significance and worth of his life falls apart. Our faith falls apart. Christianity falls apart. Joy falls apart. Unlike with sacrificial animals, which were appointed as a temporary provision, the once for all salvation is not accomplished without the resurrection of the suffering servant. So our five looks so far have been, he delighted his father before creation. He came as man. He lived for his father's glory. He humbled himself and went to the cross. He died at the cross for sins not his own. And look number six, he rose again. This is a happier series of five looks. <laughs> the first one culminating with the death. We start the second series with resurrection. And Colossians 1, 15 to 20 might be the most important six consecutive verses in the Bible. See what you think about this. Colossians 1 through 6. In terms of having a whole Christian worldview that is centered in the person of Christ, both in creation and all reality and in what he accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. So we find both creation and salvation cast utterly in Christ-centered terms in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Let me read it. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For, that's what it means to be firstborn of all creation, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, heir of all things. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And now, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is, Paul says here, firstborn from the dead. All whom he restored to life in his life and ministry died again. Lazarus died again. But when Jesus rose again, he rose never to die again. 
He rose to a different kind of life. And so our key term here for number six is resurrection, which means not to be restored to your fallen human body, just die again, but to rise in your body to the indomitable life of the next age. It is a real body in resurrection. In fact, we might even say it's a more real body. Your body will be more real in the resurrection than it is now. And what will be true of Christ's resurrection body will be true of us. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, talking about our human bodies in their death. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He doesn't say it's raised a spirit. He says a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So resurrection refers first to Jesus' human body and then also in him to ours. There's a resurrection coming for us who are in Christ. And the resurrection of Christ not only made good on God's word, because he promised it, and it not only vindicated Christ's sinless life, which it did, and it not only confirmed the achievement of his death, which it did, and it not only gives us access to his work, which it does, but the resurrection means that he is alive to know him and enjoy him. There is no great salvation if he's not alive. There's no final good news if our treasure, our pearl of great price is dead. Even if our sins could be paid for and righteousness provided and applied and heaven secured, but Jesus were still dead, there would be no great salvation now or in the end. At the very center of Christ's resurrection is not what he saves us from but what he saves us to. Better, who he saves us to, which is himself. So he rose again. Number seven, he ascended into heaven. Twice, Luke tells us about Jesus' ascension. The first time is the end of his gospel in Luke chapter 24. This is verses 50 to 51. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That's the ascension. That's the end of Luke. Then he comes back in more detail at the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts chapter one, verses six to 11. When the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, 
As they were looking on, they saw this. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So, pick up the language of the ascension here. Luke 24 says, he parted from them and was carried up. He didn't just do it, he was carried up, Luke says. And then Acts 1 says, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And then the angel says, he was taken up. So Jesus, in his risen human body, was lifted up, carried up, taken up until a cloud shielded the sight of his apostles and he was gone from their view. And this was not a novelty act. This was crucial for the presentation of his finished work in the presence of his father. This is how he gets what he does down here to count up there in the court of heaven. And in the meantime, he fulfills the ancient prophecies of a great heir on David's throne by sitting on the throne of the universe, ruling as sovereign over the nations. So we might say that Luke 24 and Acts 1 give us an earthly perspective on the ascension. This is the perspective from the disciples, what they saw. They saw him carried up, lifted up, taken up. But we also get a couple other glimpses in the New Testament of his ascension from the other side, from heaven's side. One of them is Revelation 5. We'll see that later on. Another is Hebrews 1. His ascension, human body and all, brings him to heaven, and then Hebrews 1 captures some of that great moment of his processing to the throne and being crowned king of the universe. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. After making purification for sins. So he dies, he rises, he ascends. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he ascends on the earthly side. He comes into heaven. He sits down at the right hand of majesty. Hebrews 5.1 then takes that great coronation hymn of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was a hymn of coronation when a Davidic king in the Old Testament would come to the throne. And Hebrews 1.5 then applies that great coronation hymn to Jesus as he sits down on the throne in heaven. All its messianic expectations fulfilled finally in the God-man himself who is David's heir. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And Hebrews 1.6 says that when he brings the firstborn into the world, he's bringing the firstborn into the, the world of heaven, the new age, the new world, the heaven, there's the, the he says, uh, we, it's just we saw carried, lifted, taken. Now we see that God brings him. It's another way of expressing. God brought him up. God brings him now into, the, into heaven and brings him to the throne. When he brings the firstborn into heaven, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Human, 
worshiped by angels, human, on the throne of the universe. And all this is to set the scene in Hebrews 1 for verse 13 when he quotes Psalm 110, the great psalm that anticipated his coming perhaps as much and as strikingly as any passage in the Old Testament quoted most in the New Testament, Psalm 110, more than any other chapter in the Old. So it's not a full account in Hebrews 1 by any means, but it's a taste of that climactic moment at the coronation on the other side of the ascension. And there's two critical realities here worth mentioning about the enthronement, about Jesus' sitting down. So I'm putting together his sitting down, his coronation enthronement together with the ascension here in look number seven. Two critical realities worth mentioning. Number one, in taking his seat on the very throne of the universe, he comes into the fullness of divine, of divine sovereignty and now as man. As he says in the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I might say, well, Jesus, if you're God, didn't you always have it? The answer is yes, he always had it. But he became man. And by virtue of his achievement in his life and death and resurrection, he now receives it from the Father as man. It is new now that humanity has received in Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth that he would take to heaven's very throne. Second then, he pours out his spirit as he sits on the throne. Now remember he says in Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, how will the Holy Spirit come upon them? Jesus is gonna ascend to the throne and he's gonna pour out the spirit to be upon them. From heaven's throne, Christ will send his spirit in new measure for his new covenant people, for the accomplishing of his ongoing work in the world and applying the salvation he purchased to the people for whom he died. So perhaps you know the line from the Apostles' Creed, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. And so now, as we move from look number seven, that he ascended, we move from past to present, from ascended and enthroned to is seated and is interceding. So he rose, he ascended. Look number eight, he intercedes. Present tense, he intercedes for us. This is what Jesus is doing right now, as we speak, as we're gathered here. Until now, we have been rehearsing past actions. All these past tense verbs, delighted, became, devoted, humbled, died, rose, ascended, but now intercedes. He is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. And as Isaiah 53, 12 says, he makes intercession for the transgressors. Paul celebrates this in Romans 8:34. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. But the main text I want to look at 
under look number, under look number eight is Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. If you wonder if he can save you all the way, not just start it, not just begin it and go for a while, but save you to the uttermost. The uttermost extent of your sin, the uttermost length of your life. He can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So my key term here under look number eight is intercession. So what does intercession mean in general on the one hand and then specifically as it relates to what Jesus is doing right now on heaven's throne. To intercede means to go between two parties in, on the one hand, an effort to reconcile them or to advocate for one to the other. And we often talk about interceding in prayer for each other, doing intercessory prayer, you know, praying on someone else's behalf, interceding for them in that sense. But the interceding that Jesus does for his people with the Father is distinct from our praying for each other. Because he's the one mediator between God and man. When we intercede for each other in prayer, we do that on the basis of his mediation when he intercedes for us with the Father, he does that on the basis of his own mediation. Jesus is our one mediator. He himself is the intercession. And so Hebrews 7.25 says he always lives. He lives to make intercession for us. Which means that with every breath he takes, in his glorified, resurrected human body. With every beat of his indestructible, new creation heart, he is our living, indissoluble link to God. I don't think that we are to picture Christ in heaven as our intercessor down on his knees, begging the Father, please, please don't destroy them, I died for them. No. Hebrews 7 says, he ever lives. He lives to make intercession for his people. If we are his and he is alive, then his very life, his very breath, the very beating of his glorified human heart that will never stop beating intercedes for all those who are joined to him by faith. Seated in heaven, Jesus is not anxious. He is not uncertain. He is not scurrying around heaven's throne room. He lives. He sits on heaven's throne, secure and utterly stable, in perfect heavenly equanimity and composure, interceding for his people with almighty God by his very life and breath as resurrected man. And so as the creed confesses, from there, from heaven's throne, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So he rose, he ascended, he intercedes in the present, and now look nine, he will come again. 
Now, now to the future. Our last two are future. His second coming. And with it, the final judgment. This is an amazing thing to, to, to think about that living in the present stage of this church age and his present intercession, the next step in history is his return. There's no distinct step to happen between our current age and his second coming. This is the next step in history. This is coming again. He will return and bring with him the fullness of mercy and grace to his people. And at long last, he will bring perfect and final justice to this fallen world. And so Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, to be marveled at among those who have believed. He's coming that we might marvel at him. Those who despise him and reject him, whether through apathy or outright hatred, they will stand in terror. And those who love him and love his coming will marvel at him, marvel with joy in a way that glorifies him and wonder of all wonders, even receive rewards from him who is the righteous judge. So one of the great glories of Christ, this is not to be overlooked, one of his great glories is that God will judge the world through him. This is what the apostles preached in the book of Acts. When Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 10, he recounts Christ's death and resurrection and the witnesses. And he said that Jesus commanded them to preach and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, Acts 10, 42. And then Paul, as he preaches in Acts 17, something very similar, he says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, Acts 17, 31. So let me consider here under point nine, briefly, five distinct aspects of the coming justice. If, that, if, if we have a term, a key word for look number nine, it's justice. It's a flashpoint in our day. It is in my city, justice is a reality that we pine for in many different ways. So here are five distinct aspects of the coming justice that will come with the second coming of Christ. Number one, he will come in glory. First and foremost, this second coming as final judge is very much about the glory of Christ, that his saints marvel even as his enemies cower. So Matthew 16 says, the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And Matthew 25 says, the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. No eye will miss this. No corner of the earth will be unaware. All else will stop. All eyes will see him in his glory. Number two, all will stand before him. 
not only will every eye see him, but every person will stand before him. Jesus says in Matthew 16, each person. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, each one. And not just those alive at the time when he comes, but the living and the dead. He says over and over again. Romans 14, 10, we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And who will be seated on that judgment seat? 2 Timothy 4, 1 says, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Number three, he will separate wheat from weeds. For those of us who are in him by faith, there will come a glorious and perfect discrimination. It's Matthew 25, 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So in this glorifying and horrifying moment, all human pretenses and illusions will be stripped away and one thing will matter. Are you wheat or are you weed? As the judge, he had said in his first coming, let both grow together until the harvest and at the time I come, tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew 13. Number four, he will remedy every wrong. First the weeds, he said, will be bundled and burned. And in that day, every just cry for justice will be answered. And far more fully and finally than we are able to answer with our pleas for justice in this age. We will put our hands over our mouths as the risen omnipotent lamb executes perfect justice in his perfect righteousness with no excesses and no compromise. I can't help but wonder how many of our seemingly irreconcilable conflicts in this age, which our judges and our judicial system stumble over again and again, await the day when the judge, capital J, finally comes and sets all to rights. And we will marvel at his justice. Number five, he will reward the righteous. Finally, he will gather the wheat into his barn. And I'm sure it's going to be a spectacular barn. Having remedied every wrong, every wrong he will re reward every cup of cold water given in his name. He will reward the righteous, those who are righteous ultimately by faith, but also in true measure by the Spirit. In his extravagant generosity and grace and mercy, he will lavish his people, not only with entrance into a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, but on top of it all, he will reward his people for what good they have done. On that day, 
we will see it with our own eyes and feel its full effects as recipients of his great mercy by faith. That our advocate, the one we know and love, will stand as supreme judge and complete the arc of his glories as the God-man. So one last look remains. Number 10, we will enjoy him forever. In an important sense, look number 10 is not the end, but it's a new beginning. Now, in this age and until then, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall, see, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. To see him face to face in his glory with all history complete will be not only to know him, but to enjoy him, both in that great climactic moment and increasingly forever. You will not get bored enjoying him. It will be dynamic, not static. I said earlier there's two glimpses of the other side of the ascension, Hebrews 1. We might see that also in Revelation 5. Though these are trans-temporal glances. It's hard to place them chronologically. In Revelation 5, the scene is set in heaven and the apostle John sees a scroll in the hand of one seated on the throne and an angel lifts up his voice and says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And heaven goes silent. Is there anyone worthy? And this is such a poignant moment. The apostle John begins to weep because nobody's found worthy. And then one of the elders of heaven turns to him and he says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then John reports, and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, Verse nine, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And John says, then I looked and I heard around the throne the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So 
So John sees a lamb who is also a lion. He sees one who had been slain, but who is now standing, risen. He sees one who is worthy, like no one else is worthy to take the scroll of history from the hand of God Almighty and to open it. He sees a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion who in the very presence of God Almighty in heaven received received the praises of heaven's angels and myriads of myriads. So our last key term is beatific vision. Beatific vision means the sight that makes happy. And this is the great happiness that is to come for Christ's people. The final happiness for which our souls have longed our whole life. You want to be happy, lowercase h, because you want to be happy, capital H. And as much as we long for that coming first instant of seeing Christ, sight of Christ, that nearness to him, that enjoyment of him, it will not be momentary, but it will be eternal and dynamic ever-increasing, ever-progressing, ever-clearer, ever-deeper, ever-sweeter. The one who once said in his state of humiliation, it was once said of him that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He will be the supremely majestic one from whom we will never want to turn our gaze. We, his people, together will be his bride and he will be our groom to enjoy forever. Not only will we have him as ours, but more importantly, he will have us as his. And then we will delight in and ever increasingly so, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. So 10 looks at Christ, seven past, one present, two future, preexistence, he delighted his father before creation. Incarnation, he became man. Devotion, he lived to his father's glory. Submission, he humbled himself. Substitution, he died for the sins of others. Resurrection, he rose again to eternal, glorified human life. Ascension, he was lifted up and set down as king of the universe. Intercession, he intercedes for us right now. Justice, he will come again to right every wrong and reward his people. In beatific vision, he will be our delight forever. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And after these 10 looks at Jesus, might we end with one look at ourselves? I won't pretend to know what that means for you, 
Perhaps here tonight you've heard Jesus' whole story from beginning to end for the first time. Or perhaps you've heard it before, at least bits and pieces of it, but it's never been compelling until strangely somehow tonight. Maybe your looks at Jesus have been few and far between, but 10 looks kept your eyes on him longer than before and your heart is swelling with some new admiration for him. Or perhaps you've heard his story before and you know it well and now you're encountering him again tonight. And there is so much more glory to behold. So let me close again with the quote from Robert Murray Machane in context. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Brothers and sisters, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. So Father in heaven, we want to behold the glory of your son and beholding him be changed from one degree of glory to the next. Father, we thank you for Jesus. The way you have stooped the way you have accommodated yourself to us, the demonstration of your love for us in him, and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we praise you for the gift of your son, and we praise your son that he came and became man and died in our place and rose again in triumph and intercedes for us at this very moment and will come again with his perfect justice and come again to satisfy our souls forever. Father, we don't want to wait till that day to draw nearer to him. Draw us nearer even now. Bring more looks at Christ into our lives through our reading, through our fellowship, through our relationships, in our prayers. We want to see your son Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.